Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 86. I'm your host, Eric Moore. And today we have my semi-co-host, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial Back. Jay, how are you doing today? Great, Derek. Great to be back. Episode 86. It's, uh, you know, the restaurant business, we would say when you ran out of something, you'd call it 86. Like if you ran out of pizza, you'd be 86 to pizza, take it off the menu for the day. I don't know if that has anything to do with this podcast, but I just thought I'd mention what 86 means to me. Well, I think 86 might mean, unfortunately, for some Robinhood traders uh, who had short time calls right around earnings on Tesla, you might have 86 some some of the value. But we'll, yeah, we'll get into a, that. 86 your account value. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's actually a nice transition, not planned, but nice uh, because today we're going to talk about the Robinhood traders versus the SoftBank whale, and we've heard. You know, I've never heard so much talk about the option Greeks and about what happens to, with market makers hedging. Like that's inside baseball stuff. But you, what we've seen is whether it's on forums, like on Reddit or CNBC, as we're talking about, there's this idea that you as a, you know, a trader could, could buy options and force, let's use Tesla, could force Tesla to go higher. And you could will it to go higher. And so that's kind of the, the theme of this. And Jay and I will go back and forth. Um, I'm going to use, Jay, an October 2nd Tesla call option. And so Tesla's trading at 428. And we'll kind of walk through the, the mechanics of this. So the Tesla 800 option, 800 strike option, okay, what does that mean? That means the stock's at 429 and change. Uh, if you buy this call option, you want this to go above 800 in the next like 14 trading days, 15, 15 calendar days. The option's currently trading at $2.85, which means if you bought one of these, it's going to cost you $285. And that one option will control 100 shares. So the thought of a lot of traders is, hey, if we all band together and we buy enough of these, we'll force the market maker to buy shares of stock. So here's, here's the challenge with that, though, and we'll, we'll sort of expand on this. There's a concept, something called delta. And delta is just, you know, if you ever took math in high school or I guess in college, too, you, it's a little triangle thing, right? It's the change. The delta means the change. And so if Tesla were to go up one point and all else being equal, and it never is, you know, because there's, there's time decay, there's volatility, all sorts of things, the delta on that is five cents right now. So what does that mean? That means that if the stock goes up one point, uh, this option premium would go from you know two seventy five to two eighty. So Jay, if I'm buying this, let's pretend you're the market maker. I'm I buy this one contract. I spend my two hundred seventy five dollars. It's a five delta. You have to go and buy a hundred shares, right? No, I, actually, I do not. Right. It's because it's only a five delta. I only have to go buy five shares. So the five shares, and let's kind of talk about that, because that's what people think is happening. They think, well, I'm, I'm going to buy 100 of these. I'll spend a little bit of money. And you control 100 shares, which to buy 100 shares would be $42,000 uh, and change. But and by the way, that, that assumes that that's the only trade that you're getting as the market maker. So you just want to talk about how market makers heads in general, and then we'll kind of get back into why this probably doesn't, may not make as much sense as people think. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in general, market makers do not want to have a directional bias. They don't want to have directional risk, especially on a stock like Tesla, right? They, they make their money being neutral and earning uh, a small amount of revenue for each one of the trades that they make. There's a little bit built into the price. And you can see it in options, the difference between the bid and the ask. And you can see it in the price of Tesla. Also, there's a bid and an ask. Well, they'll make little... Uh, small chunks on every one of the trades that they make, but they don't want to take Tesla risk up or down, right? And so the way that they get neutral, uh, meaning uh, directional agnostic, is they want to have an offsetting position on their book against the position on, say, you, the Robin trade, Robinhood traders uh, portfolio, right? So they want to be in a position where th- they're neutral, they're even. They're even because, as you said, they're not trying to be directional. Um, now, we said that's kind of in a vacuum. I'm the only person. I buy this one contract. You have to buy five shares. But I'm not the only trader. And so in theory, someone else out there has 100 shares of Delta and says, you know what? I'm going to sell this, uh, this option that has a probably you know, a little over 2% probability of being in the money by a penny. And it's still you know, 275. I'm like, I'll take 275 bucks. So if you got my order to buy one option uh, of the 800 strike and simultaneously somebody sold, uh, let's say, that same option, um, then you actually don't really have to do anything. No, that's true. You, you're not holding anything on your books. You really are just, the market makers first and foremost, and I should have said that, is trying to match parties up to help facilitate a transaction. But here's the other part. Let's say I don't, I don't sell the 800. Well, again... I've bought this one, but somebody else says, you know what? I'm going to sell the the 500 strike covered call because I have 100 shares. That delta is 36. So I'm saying me, the Robinhood trader, I don't want to rank on Robinhood, right? But it's just been in the news, right? Um, But they buy the five delta. Somebody else is selling the 36 delta. Jay, you don't have to buy five shares. You've got to do what now? Oh, right. Well, now, because... Uh, we ended up selling this 36 Delta, right? I have to end up selling or getting short some shares, the difference between the Delta, right? So those are the two trades. One was a five Delta. And for ease of use, I'll say this covered call was a 35 Delta. Now I've got, I'm short 30 Deltas, which means, okay, in order to offset that, uh, I've got to actually sell whatever, 30 shares, right? To get myself neutral based on those now three positions, I'm actually surprised too. You know, you and I were talking offline and just looking at the option chain. So the volume today, some, and we don't know whether these you know buyers or sellers, uh, but there's 1,900 contracts plus that traded of these two percent probability options, the 800, and the open interest is 5760. Of course, open interest is how many options contracts are are open currently, right? And that gets adjusted, that, that will get adjusted tonight. So that's not dynamic. So you'll see the new ones tomorrow. But who, who's trading this, right? I mean, this is... Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, listen, it, it's the problem with trading a deep, deep, deep out of the money option like these 800s when the stock is trading at 425. Uh, the problem with that is, um, you know, all that money that you paid for that option, in this case, you said 270, 260. You know, if the stock doesn't move dramatically higher, that's that's by the end of expiration in two weeks, that's going to be worth nothing, right? So that's all extrinsic value, right? That's all 
Um, uh, I'll say it's speculative. I mean, if you're willing to pay something that's 87% out of the money for a two-week move, if you're willing to buy that, that's that's pretty darn speculative. And that's just to break even. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of traders, Derek, and you and I have um, uh, been engaged with, over the years when we started working together in well, it was 2000, 2001. Um, when you look at over the years, and we've seen a lot of speculative individuals, you know, they're not hoping for those 800s to go in the money. They're hoping for the 800 to be worth a little more at the end of the day than it is today. All right. So, you know, when I look at, say, the 780, you know, that's right near it, uh, uh, that, that option happens to be worth 290. So if Tesla can move, you know, 20 points, you know, in the next few minutes, someone who paid 270 for that option can sell it for 270. Right? And if you ever get one of those dramatic pops, your option, you can just trade it right back, right? You don't always have to hold it to the end. Um, but let's, let's, let's stick to who is buying this. And if the thought is you can really press the market makers to have to purchase and buy enough stock to push the stock higher, uh, you could eventually get that small appreciation in your underlying option. But, you know, the amount of shares that we gave in the example was very few, right? Someone's got to throw $270 at this one option in hopes that the five, con the five shares that the market maker has to buy pushes the stock up. And I would ask you this, Derek, do you think buying five shares is going to move the share price of Tesla? Yeah, well, what did we say yesterday? You know, we're still an hour and a half away from the close today. Jay and I were you, we were talking yesterday. They were did about eighty million shares volume. Tesla's what like a three hundred billion dollar market cap company. Meaning, you know, in th in theory, if you could buy all the shares at the current price, it would. Um, and I could be, you know, it moves quite a bit. Microsoft, by the way, is two trillion. Apple's two trillion. But I mean, relative to the volume. Um, I mean, the, the amount of size that somebody would have to come in to actually start to, to push around. Now, I, I don't discount it, Jay. I mean, I, I do think it's it's something, um, but I also think that sometimes, you know, the idea that you're going to buy a bunch of deep out of the money options and push the stock higher, I think sometimes, you know, was it the stock was in an uptrend anyway? People thought earnings were going to be good. It was going to go to the S&P 500. And it just sort of happenstance or, but I, I think given the volume and given the amount of money that would need to, to push this, but I don't discount it. I mean, if enough volume and, and, and I do think it's, it's an interesting question. If we start to see derivatives, i.e. options outstrip the volume by, you know, some magnitude over the actual shares, this could be an interesting thing going forward. But yeah, I mean, Jay, it's, I mean, somebody, somebody buying, I mean, how many would they, they have to buy to actually, you know, and, and look, if you buy the higher Delta options, guess what? They cost more money. If you buy uh, the options at the money and usually have a 50 Delta, you know, yeah, you have to buy 50 shares now, but guess what? To buy one contract, it's like five grand, not 270 bucks. So yeah, Jay, I mean, I, I don't know your thoughts, but I, I just think given the volume, the, the other thing I'll lead to here is, well, let's, let's put yourself in the market maker's shoes, right? And they go, okay, I see what's happening here. Um, they're the ones that set the option prices, right? The option market is, like all things, supply and demand. And the more people buying these calls, well, guess what the market makers are going to do? Guess what the market in general is going to do? You're going to start to charge more and more to purchase those options. And so, you know, the market makers aren't idiots. If 
let's say they're probably the smartest people on Wall Street, quite frankly, right? When it comes to the you know technicals of the ins and outs of pricing, uh, because that's their livelihood. Um, they're going to start to charge more and more. Fine. You want to be speculative, Mr. Independent Individual Do-It-Yourself Trader? I'm going to make you pay a little more. And they're going to try to charge more and more and more. And Derek, I'll throw it back to you. What, what do we call that uh, portion of the, uh, uh, the option pricing that reflects this, you know, this, 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 this greed associated with the calls? Well, I was going to say that it's tuition you wind up paying the market for an education. <laughs> well, there's that too. They are paying for <laughs> tuition. But where I was going was it's the implied volatility, right? Yeah. The, 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 the how expensive, uh, how greedy are people with these calls is exactly what's being uh, reflected there, right? So the more greed, the more expensive it is. Uh, and they obviously watch trends. Uh, the fact that there's almost 2,000 contracts traded today at the 800 strike. Uh, tells you that okay, we're just going to push this this higher and higher each day, right? We're going to push the implied volatility higher uh, on, on these options, and actually, it's up a little bit from yesterday, Derek, and when you and I were watching at it, the you know, so that's one of those things you could track within the option chain to see how inexpensive or expensive uh, 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 you know these these options are. You know, I wonder, Derek, and I know we didn't plan on doing this, but maybe I could throw kind of a uh, a, a similar idea out there, maybe compare it to say a less volatile stock of, of similar size, right? So Tesla is about 400 bucks. It, would you mind taking a look at uh, United Health, UNH for the same expiration? Yeah. And by the way, as, as I'm transitioning there, just doing the quick, I, well, do some quick math uh, to get to $8,800. That's an 85% increase in 15 days in the stock price. The implied volatility across the whole chain was 145, which implies a, a 9% plus or minus daily move. So Tesla is reflecting quite a bit of, of volatility. Now, UNH, the whole chain, as we say, you know, that's all the options, about a 30% vol, 145 to 30. And, you know, if we take a look at, you know, like it's a $300 stock. To get to, I mean, like the the four the four hundred four hundreds for the same expiration, right? Yeah, there's no bid to you can't even sell it, and they want twenty cents. Twenty cents, right? So you could buy one of those contracts for removal only thirty percent for twenty bucks, right? Uh, uh, and that is a third of the amount that we were talking on Tesla. But Tesla, you'd have to pay two hundred seventy dollars. For a similar for for an option that is you know almost three times farther out of the money, and so it just goes to show there's there's no appetite for uh, you know for, for any kind of volume in UNH deep out of the money options, and we see that in the pricing of the options as reflected by the implied volatility, and that I just wanted to use that as a comparison so that people understood this is you know Tesla is, is definitely one of the more volatile stocks in the market these days, if not the and uh, the, uh, the market makers are going to make you pay if you want to start to try to uh, inflate, artificially inflate the price of the stock by the tail wagging the dog, the options moving the underlying stock price. They're making you pay for that right now because they understand um, uh, the potential dynamics here. And so it gets expensive to do that. I think we, um, I want to talk about time decay too and, and, and Tesla and how that is a problem for for the deep end of the money. But one thing I'll I'll note, you and I both noticed it was probably a two week period where we saw the market going up, but we also saw the VIX going up. 
you know, is, uh, and I think that this is part of it. I think when you have a lot of deep out of the money call buying, the skew, I mean, normally the puts are the ones that have the volatility and the premium, but no, no, the, the calls were getting bid up, which means you were paying more, not you, but somebody buying these was paying more. Right. And, uh, you know, I always, uh, uh, the regular, the general media or refer to the VIX as kind of the fear gauge. I, um, uh, I always, re- I refer to it more like the speculative gauge, right? So it just means that you are willing to pay more for options today than you were yesterday. And as you said, in, in the, the last two weeks of August, you saw that that was being reflected from the call side, when usually it's the put side, meaning usually people are buying puts as protection because they're fearful that the market would drop, right? A long put uh, is considered a bearish position, right? If you're long a put, typically you want the market to go down. So you buy those as kind of an offset in your portfolio when things look bad, hence the term, the fear indicator, but uh, the fear index. But this time around, you're totally right, Darren. Um, it was more of a greed indicator. And as the volatility was being inflated, especially in the NASDAQ 100 and stocks like Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Facebook, all of the Tesla, of course, all of that increase in the premium and the cost of options was happening on the call side, not on the put side. And, you know, that is uh, for us, that is not it's not normal to see that. And uh, it's one of those things that we would see, you know, it helped us decide the market was a little frothing at the time. I think that's probably a nice way to put it. One of the reasons why we're talking about short-term op- options, of course, is uh, according to articles, Wall Street Journal, CNBC. And again, I, I, I encourage people to get involved with the markets. And there's nothing wrong with opening a, a trading account, keeping your risk the, you know, parameters in line. But I do think it seems like, and this is the perception, there's a lot of people who are new to options. And there's a ton of volume in the near expiration, meaning options that might have one or two weeks to go. And the problem with playing in this type of uh, pool is you've got to be right, but you've got to be right in the amount of time. And so that option, I mean, how much time decay? Two weeks to go, which is, that's like five, uh, October 2nd. Yeah, that, I don't know how many trading days it is. We got like two weekends in there. So it's probably only about 11. It, it might be 10, 11 trading days, yep. Yeah. So somebody buys that 800 option at 275. I know the price has changed as we're looking at it, but we'll keep 275. It's a five delta, but I mean, how much does that ice cube melt, that time decay burn on this thing? Yeah. And and, and, and it's not linear. So there's actually a data point that lets you track this. It's uh, Normally I wouldn't bring it up, but since we talked about time decay, it's called theta. And it tells you the amount of money that the option will drop each day, all things, everything else being the same, right? Volatility, movement of the stock, would say there's no change. And in this case, that 800 uh, strike option, that 800 strike call option is going to lose 46 cents a day, 45 cents a day, just from the passage of time. And so, you know, that's one of the problems that you have when you're buying speculative out-of-money options is time is not your friend. Um, let's talk about that 500 option you were mentioning before, Derek. Uh, where you said, hey, what if I was to sell those 500 calls? Well, in that example, time decay works to your favor because the option is going to drop by $1.50 per day. And so, you know, a lot of uh, newer option traders will like to buy speculative options. A little more experienced option traders will sell expensive options like this one because, you know, the odds of Tesla going above 500 uh, at expiration 
It's about one out of three chance. But meanwhile, if they sell that 500 option, uh, they are going to earn $1.50 every day of time decay. So it's one of those things that's important to recognize about uh, uh, time decay, that it can work against you. Um, it also goes to your point, Derek, where you can be right on the direction, but your timing could be off. Right? Tesla could go to 800 by the end of the year, but if it doesn't happen in two weeks, these options are going to be worthless. Heck, Tesla can go from where we are now, 426 to 500, and you're like, wow, it went up 75 points. This option is still going to be worthless when it's over. So again, you could be right on direction, but not right on your timing. One thing, uh, and we've talked about this before, I'll mention, you know, a lot of the, uh, according to reports, the the new option traders, they bought you know, really short-term options on Tesla. I think they were strike, you know, it was before the split. So they're probably right around the 2000s, right around earnings. And we know that at right at earnings, you really pay up because that's a driver of, of price. And so after earnings, volatility collapsed. Some of the traders were right, uh, didn't go up that much, but they were wrong in that they bought options when they were most expensive and were surprised that, um, you know, they lost money. The last thing I'll mention on this too is, so we, we talked about, you know, the, the amount of time decay per day. We talked about, you know, that five delta, which is just a fancy way for saying if price goes up by a dollar or down by a dollar, what should the option, what should happen to my option premium? That's not, as you said, you know, linear or it's not, it's not equal for every point. In other words, you can't be like, oh, if Tesla goes up a hundred points, my option will go up 50 points. It doesn't work that way. And there's another metric, and we can confuse you all and go into it, but I'll just sort of explain another way. And it's, um, it's delta will change and adjust as a stock gets more in the money, more out of the money, closer to the money, deals with expirations. But Jay, I always like to say, for the Greek that will remain nameless, it's kind of like if you walked into a room with a, a piece of wood and you're going to put the, the wood on the fire. Well, if you walk into the room, every step you take, there's there's such a small incremental change in, in the temperature. Like it doesn't get blazing hot right when you walk in the room. But when you're really close to the fire and you're going to put that log on the fire, it's really, really hot. And so your rate of change and how hot it gets is cl- the closer to the fire, the more that change in temperature happens than if you back away from it. Uh, but that's my, is that a good analogy, good analogy or bad analogy, Jay? No, I think it's a great analogy, right? If you take the same size step towards that fire, uh, the change in the heat you feel is not linear, right? It doesn't go up five degrees every step you take towards the fire, right? It gets hotter and hotter each one of those steps as you get closer and closer. So no, it's a great analogy. And the same applies to uh, uh, to options, right? As you get closer to the money, the rate of change of those options gets uh, higher and higher. So, yeah, it's uh, I think it's important to realize that um, you know when trading options, uh, that there are all of these pieces that are involved in the pricing of options. There's complicated uh, uh, calculations that go into it. Um, unfortunately, most of us learn these learn these lessons by, like you said, Derek, we call it tuition, right? You learn because you've traded. And what you expected happened, but you didn't get paid the way you wanted to, right? That can, that is one of the things that uh, we, we highly encourage. Heck, Derek, we both wrote books that talk about options, right? So um, we both wrote about investing and using options. And it's one of those things that uh, we want the masses to understand. And we want folks to understand how option pricing works. Uh, but, you know, certainly we don't want people to lose money. 
right? So it, it but it, there is no better way to, to learn about it than, than do it, in my opinion. And then how many years have we been educating people, Derek? Because uh, uh, we're approaching 20 at this point. Yeah, uh, and that there is no better way to learn it than to do it. But can I just say, don't do it on Tesla? I mean, is that is that giving bad advice? Maybe I shouldn't give advice. But it seems that every novice novice option trader I've talked to this year is trading Tesla because it's so enticing when you look at those pricing prices. You go, wow, that seems very unlikely, or that seems really likely. Uh, you know, stay away from the most volatile stock. It's almost like handing the keys of a Ferrari to someone who just got their license. By the way, my son is now driving to school, Derek. He's 16. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, I did not give him a Ferrari. <laughs> I gave him a 10-year-old Jeep that he could bust up. But the, the point is, uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things. This is a very volatile stock. Learn your lessons on something that's not going to burn you too much. Hey, guess what? Risk first. Measure your risk first. Understand what's going to happen when you're wrong. Uh, you're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong on some of your trades. The best traders in the world are wrong 40, 30% of the time. Just don't let those times when you're wrong wipe out the other 60, 70% of the time that you're right. Yeah. And obviously you and I both have books and everyone should go out and buy them today. But I'll, I'll just throw a plug for uh, Jack. Jack Schwager wrote a series of Market Wizards books that really, you know, he did interviews with some of the really famous traders and it's uncanny how many of those people were, were so focused on, on risk so any new traders out there who want to get a sense in uh, how the, the pros do it, that's, a, that's always a good one. We'll put a link in the show notes to, to those. Jack's, Jack's a, a good author and uh, yeah, he, you've read those years ago. I think we all did. Yeah. yeah. Mandatory reading at our former employer. We used to give those out too. Remember we did that for a while? We had, uh, we had educational sessions and I think we had bought some books. Everyone used to get a copy. We were doing that for a while. So we did. We did. It's before you and I wrote ours. So I guess we'd give out our book now. <laughs> <laughs> we went back on the circuit. So it's transitioning to away from the Robin Hood, the individuals, uh, to the whale, the SoftBank whale. And so here's one of the reasons, you know, I don't want to discount this this uh, Delta Gamma, you know, market makers having to buy stock. Because here's what happens. If if there's enough uh, open interest long open interest on some of these options and price goes up. Well, as you just said, as the Delta moves higher, the market makers could have to buy more shares in a vacuum, right? We don't know what other orders are coming in or, but SoftBank also got some news recently. I don't have independent verification on this, neither do you, but from all reports, they did something like $4 billion buying options tied to its stock holdings. And, um, you know, SoftBank, of course, uh, they own Sprint. You know, they they did venture capital. They do sovereign wealth funds. WeWork is the one, right? They they had that. Uh, that didn't. I don't know how that works out now, in, in uh, given COVID. But in an article um, that I read online, they give some examples. So Microsoft, and they said it was tied to its stock holdings. Some people said they reduced their shareholdings in these and swapped it out for spreads. There's actually some interesting ways to, to take profits by, by doing things like that. But they said they did 75,000 contracts of the November 220 by 240 call spread. And some people said, hey, you know, this is what caused the market to, to get really toppy. You know, the market makers had to buy all these options. But when you do a spread, Jay, it's, 
you know, and I'll give you the the deltas in a second, but the 220, the uh, the 240s, they were buying, uh, at least as today, the 32 delta. And the 240s, they were selling the 16 delta. So essentially, they were net, you know, long 16 delta. If they actually sold shares at the same time, and I have no way I haven't seen that for sure. Uh, a lot of moving parts, though. But this could have been a stock replacement. But Jay spreads, you're, you're buying and selling. So you're actually not adding as much delta as just being long. Yeah. And, it, and it's not nearly as costly for you to do it. Right. Uh, so it makes that long option uh, that represents your bullish position on the stock uh, less expensive because you've got that short option that's decaying um, not as fast as your long option, but at a rate that you found uh, uh, so to offset some of the cost. And it is not a bad strategy once, you know, you're up. Microsoft had one heck of a run. Right. And it's not a bad strategy to rotate into calls as a way of putting cash in your pocket uh, because you're taking profits on the stock and but not taking your upside exposure off. So you sold your stock, got cash, bought some calls, still had your upside exposure. Uh, in this case, seems like they were willing to limit their growth to 240. Uh, if that's the call that they sold because you stopped making money after that at expiration. Uh, but you're also now taking a lot less risk, right? Those those long call spreads that you purchased are definitely cheaper than owning stock. And so, you know, if the stock retraced down to, I think it's down to 200 now, right? From that, for that time frame, right? Let me take a look at it. Yeah, it's 201 today. Um, you know, it's definitely, you, you would not have lost nearly the amount if you had held the stock from 230 down to 200, right? So it's one of those things that those long calls put you in a hedged position because you've limited your risk, no matter how bad it gets, you can only lose what you paid for that call spread. You put cash in your pocket. So I, I really don't have a problem with that tactic. I think it's a, a pretty smart tactic to do when you don't want to take off the upside, but you certainly want to cash in. And it's a way of maybe reflecting an idea of the market's a little toppy. I don't want to be too greedy. I'll only give up some, some upside past 240. Uh, but I, you know, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, be totally in cash on this position. So, you know, I don't have a lot of problem with that kind of a trade versus those 800, you know, Tesla calls that are just going to just work, you know, bleed you over time. Yeah. I mean, given to, let's let's imagine for a second, they took the, the total $4 billion and, you know, 4 billion on a $2 trillion company is what's the percentage there. I got to do math now. That's like 4%, right? I think it's less than that. Is it, isn't it 4%? Is it, I got to do like, like, okay, if it was 4, <laughs> well, it was 4 two, million. Two trillion would be, 2% of 2 trillion would be 40 billion. So I think it's 0.2%. Okay. There you go. Yeah. We know how to trade this stuff. We don't want to do math, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> so my point I there calculus is. calculus every day, but don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> it's the simple math that gets us, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, even if they spent $4 billion and even if they did, you know, 40 delta options, by the way, you're still not needing to hedge uh, 100 delta on each, each of those. So, and they're like today, I'm looking at their volume, they're almost 24 million. It'd be a lot of, you know, shares to buy, but, you know, I don't know if that would solely push a stock like my, a $2 trillion stock like Microsoft 
up another X percent. I don't, I don't know. I think it can, I think it can contribute to it. I think it's, some of it's coincidental. I think it's a, like if I own the stock and I knew someone was coming in with 4 billion worth of call options to buy and they knew this cat, you know, they did spreads here. I, sure, it's good for me if I own the stock, but in a vacuum, right? You, you never know what else is going on, but I don't know if it would move the stock that much. You never know what else is going on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a couple million, it's 19 million shares uh, that they've traded, but who knows over what time period, right? So, you know, if they're wise as we think they are, they're one of the biggest uh, uh, private equity firms, hedge firms, whatever you want to call them in, in, in the world, I think... You know, they've got some very uh, skilled folks there. I'm sure they didn't jam that all in one day, right? So it was over time. And, uh, you know, you want to take risk off. Uh, it's, it's again, it's it's that kind of a move is, is yes, it's a net bearish bias because you're selling stock that has 100 delta. You're buying calls that, what you say, it was a 16 delta, right? So you're net causing some pressure on the stock. But the, the size there is still... Not enough to move one of the biggest companies in the United States. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, and they did do the Novembers. Um, I don't know when they did it, but again, this is all speculation because it's uh, according to the the articles. But um, by the way, if SoftBank wants us to implement any hedging strategies for them, they should give us a call. We're, they we'll, should. They should yeah. definitely. We'll they should do it call. right right now. Right. Right. <laughs> The other uh, thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, and, and the title of this episode could also be why we hate covered calls, why we love covered calls. And it's it really is a love-hate relationship because for anyone who, who isn't familiar with it, you know, you own 100 shares of stock. You own any number of shares of stock, right? But let's say you own 100 shares of stock. And covered calls used to be, hey, you know, I bought my stock at $50. I'm like, hey, I'd love to get out if it hits 70 so I'm going to sell the $70 call, bring in a little bit of premium. If it goes up, great. Uh, if it doesn't, I get to pocket the premium. And years ago, there used to be the, the no-cost collar, right? You sell, you sell the covered call and use that premium to buy the put. That's no longer available given our interest rate environment. But Jay, why do you hate covered calls so much? Yeah, well... <laughs> Hate is a strong word. Uh, again, it goes to the impact of the portfolio. So covered calls, the main thing you should know about them is they are not a hedge. We have heard people say, well, I'm protected because I'm selling calls. Nope. If you sold a call over stock, it doesn't do anything to stop your stock from going to zero, right? It doesn't All you've done is earn a little bit of money for the call that you sold. So first off, they're not a hedge. They are a premium generation strategy, meaning get a little extra income, as Derek said, right? Hey, I'll buy the stock, make a little extra for holding it by selling these out-of-the-money calls. Um, the downside on calls that uh, uh, has been evident over the last, I'll say, five years, uh, maybe maybe seven years, is that uh, with the exception of August that we just went through, you're not getting enough uh, premium in those calls you're selling for the upside you've given away. So what happens when you're long stock and you've sold a call, you're obligated to sell at that price. Um, and if the stock goes up and through your strike price, you either have to manage that position by doing something we call rolling uh, rolling up the calls, meaning getting the strike higher, um, or you're going to let the stock get called away from you. I, you know, For me, uh, uh, it's okay if it's uh, a strategy where you are looking to make a small amount of return. I think the highest covered call strategy 
you know, pure off just the covered calls that I've seen uh, and that we've run is maybe a 5% annualized additional return on the stock. The trouble is if a stock goes up more than that uh, in that one year period, which is not very much these days, right? You're going to be into a position where you've got to roll those out and delay the assignment of the stock. So I don't like limiting the upside of the market very much if I'm not getting paid. If you're going to pay me 10% a year to do that kind of strategy, yeah, that's fine, right? I don't mind that scenario uh, because, by the way, 10% a year is probably within most clients' goals of their growth per year, right? So not only do you get the growth of the stock, you get this premium, but the premiums, generally speaking, in calls are so much lower uh, than they've been in the past. Uh, Of course, like we said, this year, uh, especially with August, calls did get a bid and uh, they were higher, and that would have been great to sell calls in the month of uh, July and August. I think we might have done that, Derek, actually. Uh, but besides besides that, uh, it's been really difficult to make uh, uh, to generate returns on uh, uh, on covered calls. I will I will throw um, one other aspect in here, which is. What most people don't realize is that the broad market, the, and I'm, using, I'm going to use the S&P 500 here, the broad market goes up on average, uh, or I shouldn't say on average, the broad market goes up by more than 15% every other year, right? So 50% of the time, half the years, over the last 100 years, half of the years, calendar years, the market's gone up more than 15%. Uh, so if you're selling calls, you are really making a bet that this is going to be a lousy year, right? Uh, that's that's the kind of the bet that you're making when you're selling calls, because generally speaking, the market goes up. Not always, obviously. I mean, wouldn't you have thought, Derek, this would be a great year to sell calls with what we went through in March? Turns out, if you sold calls, you know, pretty much any time with the exception of the last few weeks, you would have had trouble getting uh, in the pricing of those and you would have limited your upside. So sorry I went off on that. I definitely have a lot of points to make there. You know, why I, uh, uh, it's rare that I would support the selling of calls. I think when markets are at all-time highs, it's a, that's an okay time to sell calls. Just realize that you're going to cap your gains if the market momentum continues. I think the point about this being a risk mitigation strategy is, is often something that's that's misunderstood. And, and I'll frame it this way. Over the years, both of us have, have talked to you know, institutions, advisors, clients who say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually in a, a hedging strategy already. They sell covered calls. Let me, let me just break this down. Well, I'll use Microsoft because it's up on my screen. So Microsoft is, you know, 201 and something. And so let's say you were going to sell, um, oh, I don't know. Maybe you were going to sell the, you know, the 210 call for Microsoft for November. And you're like, okay, this is great. I'm going to bring in, uh, what am I going to bring in? About 950. Yeah, about 950 in premium. Okay. So that means my stock can go up another nine points. I bring in 950, call it, you know, 18 and a half is, is my upside. And yeah, we can, you know, you can roll that. You can get out of the way uh, if the stock moves far enough. But here's the thing. Not only do you give up the upside, but all your lim- all your taking away from the downside is your break even from today would go from you know that you wouldn't lose until the market was down uh, to what like one ninety two or so you know one ninety one and a half so that's all that it's giving you 
It's all it's giving you. And that is, you know, that's 5%, but you're giving up that upside. And that's Microsoft. You know, Microsoft has a high price stock. It's not incredibly volatile, but, and then if you start to look up and say, well, you know, I'd sell it, you know, if it's, so, I mean, to me, the covered call, it takes a lot more work than people realize because more often than not, you're going to have adjustments. And if you, don't de- if you don't do the adjustments early enough or at the right time, you're not going to be able to adjust it. And then you're stuck. So I think that's, that's just one of the things. It's not a, you know, you'd be much better off with a, a real hedging strategy. Now, I think the case for covered calls, and we see this, Jay, with the, uh, uh, you know, the concentrated position portfolios we manage. And we actually wrote a, a white paper. I'll put a link to it in the show notes on managing concentrated stock risk. You know, where, you're, where somebody has only like one stock and they don't want to sell it for tax reasons. Or, uh, but I think there, you know, using calls when you have a strategic plan to sell at different prices and you're okay with selling, I think it makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, absolutely. That is a good uh, use. If you, if you have the intention of selling, say, a quarter of your stock every year and you have a price in mind, why not sell a call against it and get that extra premium? Now, of course, it's not. we probably would recommend hedging as well because you still take stock risk. In your Microsoft example, you said your break even is you know, around 192. So if you're a long stock and you sold this 210 call and Microsoft goes from 200 to 100, you, you've lost from 192 to 100, right? You didn't protect very much at all in that scenario. Uh, and so you're right in the fact that sometimes uh, if you have a plan and you have exit prices that you like to hit before you sell, covered calls are a great way to do that. I totally agree with that uh, as in the concentrated stock world. Um, and by the way, on individual stocks, it's um, you can get a little extra premium. Uh, uh, Microsoft, for example, has got a 43 implied volatility, so it's you know 50% more volatile than say that uh, UNH we were just talking about the United Health. But it's Microsoft, right? It's tech stock. So you know you might be happy, Derek, in this trade uh, that you just mentioned to sell at 210 in 64 days, and you go, hey, in two months I made you know uh, $19 on a $201 stock. That may be great for you. By the way, I'd love to make 10% every 60 days. I think that'd be a great strategy. So you have to be willing to do that. But again, the stock has to go up. But regarding the concentrated stock, it is absolutely a way of scheduling exits and generating a little extra return on those exits uh, uh, while you're waiting for, for, for time to get to the next tax year. I think you made a great point too. And, and maybe we'll we'll sort of start to wrap up on this one, is that the market is on average up 15% quite a number of years. I think it surprises people. And I think it's, you know, a lot of people have been through 2000, 2008, the 20-year average uh, compounded annualized growth rate, including dividends from 2000 to 2000, you know, the end of 2019, I say was only a little over 6%. Um, I mean, I <laughs> it's actually interesting. If you have a 20-year stretch and that was your only you know, if that was your return, if stocks only doubled the next 10 years based on history, it would be an outlier to the downside, you know, no predictions, but, uh, but I think it's a good point. I mean, stocks outperform to the upside. We used to call it, uh, you know, there's black swan events, but white swan events, this is something I made up. I think I made it up. You did. You coined the, you, you coined the phrase. That's yours. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, 
it's and covered calls, you have white swan risk. And white swan is, you know, the markets go up a lot of years and it's right there in front of you and, and shouldn't be surprised if you sell covered calls 10% above the market that it winds up getting, you know, hit or you got to adjust it. Um, I think you also made a great point about, you know, look, in March, if you would have said, hey, I'll sell, if you could give me any premium for the 2,800, so the 3,000 calls, I'll sell those all day on the S&P. You know, we hit almost 3,500 or, or we crested 3,500 before this recent turn, turn down. So, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, and you could get a lot of premium, by the way. I think in March you could have sold the near-term ones for quite a bit, which was uh, which was interesting. But yeah, but not but not enough to offset what the market actually ended up doing. Yep. All right, Jay. I think we'll we'll end it there. I'm going to put in the show notes link to both our books. People should go to Amazon or your other favorite bookseller and buy those immediately. They are great um, Halloween gifts. Halloween gifts, right? I mean, why not? Let, let's not scare people. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I was going to say Labor Day gifts. We we just uh, that's good stuff. Yeah, no, put it. Uh, I'll also link to the white paper we did on concentrated stock hedging. You and I wrote that. It's uh, it's a pretty. I think it's a. It turned out really well, and it'll give people a good sense of you know how we would manage an individual position and covered calls is is one of the pieces. And if I can remember what the heck else I was going to link to, I'll. I'll link to that as well. So I think the market wizard books you're going to throw in there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I swear, you know, it's funny too, because I, I was, I was fortunate to, uh, when you and I were involved with the education at TD, we used to do the, what do we call it? The market huddle, the webcast. Yep. Which by the way, if we had podcasting back then, it would have been a no brainer. I, I can't even get into the, the, the technical, uh, feed it was to have like 5,000 people listen to a, a webcast, but I, I interviewed him. He was great. And, you know, I, I've talked to him off air and, uh, you know, c- couldn't be nicer. And he's written more than just the market wizards, but he, he wrote a book on, on risk too. And I, I feel like that was one for us where the market wizards was, was one for everybody. Um, don't know if he's going to write anything else. I thought he was going to write, he had a, a, like an undiscovered traders type book. I it was rumored, but, uh, but we'll see. Anyway. Yeah. Great books. Um, and I'll leave everybody with the, one of the best quotes was from a trader named Mark Minervini. And that was, being wrong isn't a choice, but staying wrong is. And so you Robin Hood traders, remember that. Uh, good, good to cut losses if you can. Jay, thanks uh, for doing this. Pleasure as always. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on before the 100th episode at least. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Great to be here on episode 86. Thanks, Jay. See everyone. <laughs>